Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Broadway Bullet, Volume 605, and What Else Do You Do? For October 6th, 2015, subscribe with iTunes or RSS and don't miss a single episode. This is your host, Michael Gilbo, and we have a lot going on. We have interviews with comedian, musician, improv artist, Late Late Show co-host Reggie Watts, Joan Kane, director with Ego Actus Production Company, Joe McGinty, musical director and founder of Losers Lounge, as well as resident accompanist with Sid Gold's Request Room. We also talk with audiobook narrator Dara Rosenberg and hear a song demo from composer-actress Amanda Higgins. So, get a seat right now. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Thank you, Sid Gold's Request Room, New York City's original rock and roll piano bar for great cocktails and live piano karaoke with Joe McGinty. Sid Gold's Request Room, located at West 26th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. All right, hello everybody and welcome to Volume 605. Hard to believe we're exactly halfway through the first half of the season uh, that means I got to get ready for planning a new trip and a new batch of episodes. Uh, Sid Gold Request Room is a great location sponsor for the last one. However, uh, my trip back interviews are going to be uh, December 14th through the 18th is the only time I can make it happen. And they're booked up with a lot of Christmas parties because it's a great space. So I'm wondering if any of my listeners out there know of any place I could use, ideally free or cheap. I know that's a hard call. Because also, ideally, I need kind of midtown and easy to get to for all these theater people. But we do give a good sponsorship. And uh, if you're looking, I don't need soundproof. You kind of heard that. Uh, But I do need relatively quiet and relatively private. Um, But like an office room or something. If you know something, uh, a place that I could utilize and you want to give me a shout out, I'd greatly appreciate it. Definitely give you a, a big shout out on the program for that. Um, also, if you want to help out, uh, during the recording, that would be great as well. Basically the plan is to do interviews during regular business hours, Monday through Friday that week from nine 30 to four 30. Uh, so that's kind of what I need. Any other questions, please feel free to field them to me at uh, broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. Also a congratulations out to the winner from our book drop contest last week. 
We're giving away one copy of the beautiful hardbound Brian Selznick book, The Marvels. The winner is Manhattan's own Kurt Hellerick. Uh, he seemed pretty excited. He said he never wins anything. So uh, give a good congratulations to Kurt Hellerick, and maybe we'll have more giveaways coming up in the future on the program. With all that said, let's uh, hunker down to our first interview with my good friend from high school, Reggie Watts. <laughs> Up close. All right. I am sitting here in my recording studio with Reggie Watts. And uh, hopefully you recognize the name. But if you don't, you probably recognize the hair. <laughs> <laughs> Only one of the hairs, though. <laughs> Reggie Watts has the enormous afro. He is now currently hosting the with James Corden, the Late Late Show, or is it the Late 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 it's, Show? It's the it's the uh, Late Late Show. Just two lights, <laughs> two yeah. lights. The, although I would rather be in the Late 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 Show. I think that would be great. <laughs> so uh, Reggie Watts is actually from my hometown in Great Falls. He actually graduated from my high school a year after me, and I did theater with this guy in high school for a little bit. That's right. And uh, so I wanted to bring him in here. He has done a fair amount of uh, live stage work. But especially where I think he might be of interest to everybody here is his enormous amount of improvisational work. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You call it work, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the first thing is what what drew you to improvisation in the first place? I mean Yeah, I mean I've been trying to figure that out myself. I think it started I think it started just from, you know, like when you're playing with your friends as, as little kids, like you're just making up stuff and, and having fun doing that. And I think that I kept that part of, of creating stuff so that it applied to everything that I was doing. So I, it, for me, it was more fun and easier to not use structure than to use structure like well i should say to create structure in real time yeah. as opposed to planning something out although i did plenty of you know structuring and writing and i and i studied classical piano and violin so that gave me a lot of structure that's not to say that i never never had that and i and i loved it but i just deviated after a certain period of time i just kind of went back to like well why don't we just go for it you know um so i think it just stemmed from just that playful nature of being a child and like having star Wars action figures and going, and then Boba Fett does this and then blah, blah, blah. You know, I think that's kind of where it comes from. So maybe to kind of prep this all off, you've had a very varied career as yeah. you've moved out. Actually, the period I'm most unfamiliar with uh, since we didn't go to school is kind of like the post immediate kind of post college period. But I know mm -hmm. you ended up, uh, fronting Maktoub mm -hmm. in Seattle, which, um, at least I, I think everybody in Seattle knows who Mach 2 is. Definitely in Seattle. It, yeah. it was a really big regional band um, yeah. that I heard about. And then you kind of ventured back into comedy in your career for the, has that been about an, almost a decade again now since that? Yeah, that's, that's completely accurate. It was uh, 33. <laughs> I, I started comedy. So yeah, exactly a decade. Yeah. So, but saying you started comedy at 33 is really unfair because... <laughs> I mean, I remember working on, you know, competitive drama scenes, yeah. you know, and the things, and in a lot of ways, you're, you're, you're act, I mean, you've matured and you've gotten smarter and better, but it's really the same aesthetic you had way back in high school. Yeah. It's, it's good to finally have someone that was there with, <laughs> to, to verify that because when people ask me like, you know, how has it changed? And I always tell people it hasn't really changed that much aside from adding uh, an effects machine and, you know, and kind of like honing it a bit with the times, uh, the, the, 
the basic vibe of where I'm coming from is the same. It's, it's really that kind of silly, uh, absurdist, uh, playful nature mixed now, I think with a little bit more social commentary that's kind of hidden in the mix. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's the same, it's kind of the same thing we were doing in high school. Yeah. And you're, you're, I think it's pretty blown up pretty big virally over the past release, but the fuck shit stack that came out oh, yes. a while ago yes. on the thing is definitely something that we'll have to share on the front page of our website. Oh, oh yeah, please, please. Yeah. There's that. And there's, if you're fucking, and of course, what about blowjobs? This no. is why it's great that it's an internet program. We can say all your titles. <laughs> totally. They're all English words, guys. Chill out. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, high school was super important because drama, I mean, I don't, I don't think we even have competitive drama in Montana anymore. I don't think they have that program. Anymore. You know, in the smaller schools, they do in oh, the DNC sp- schools. Okay, so like, because you know, back in the day, we were like really well funded. I mean, like we were, we kind of had hit that sweet spot in the '80s for drama, uh, for any extracurricular activity, because Gray Falls High. What what I think it was like at one point like number the the number one rated school district like yeah. like our region or whatever like in the United States for a public school or or at least highly ranked yeah. at one point so we had all this funding and uh, and you know when we'd go on these drama trips it was crazy we'd be on a really nice chartered bus <laughs> and and they would have like tinted windows and we'd be given twenty dollars per diem for the for the weekend to buy our meals which your mother didn't know about. Oh, she Do you remember that? Oh, and she would give me an extra 20. I th- yeah. I think she Mom, gave me they don't give us anything to eat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, <laughs> there's nothing at all. We're so hungry. Alms for the poor. Yeah, that's true. I was a little bit enterprising. But you know what? I'm I also remember popping in at your house and your mother going, Oh, Reggie's on a drama trip. Or I'm doing your, I don't do a French accent. Yeah, no, good. This is good. <laughs> your mother's it's fairly French. good in that it is not an English accent. Yes. Um, yeah. Reggie's. <laughs> Yes, drama <laughs> trip. Uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, but I mean, like, and I'm like, really? Yeah, it's like, are you sure? Because uh, I just saw. Him. Uh, no, I mean, but I mean that, but that, but having that funding and having yeah. that support when you're that young and you have these crazy ideas and you're you're able to actually exercise that stuff. I mean, that that was so incredibly important. I mean, that's that's everything because of that. It's it's really helped where I am today, you know, and I I worry about other kids these days with not having that opportunity. Um, I feel like we were kind of like one of the last uh, generations of that school before, like the funding started getting cut down. Of course, the first thing that they go to are mm-hmm. all the the arts and uh, you know extracurricular yeah, things because it does nothing to improve society. It does not. No, unfortunately, yeah. it's just completely extra. It's like a piece of chocolate that you didn't need. Well, uh, yeah, I think there are a lot of people out there who would love it if none of us knew how to think for ourselves. That's true, actually. <laughs> You're right about that. But damn it, we won't <laughs> let them win. <laughs> So I, I, I said, you know, one reason I really, I, I've always admired you and our, our parallels. Like I think you, like me, we have always, I've always battled with how do I bring music into my theater and theater into my music. And, you know, right. I, I've always loved doing both. And I think that's where we connected a lot in high school too. We were both doing the open mics on our keyboards too. And that's right. You had the cooler keyboard. No, oh, I was jealous. I had the Roland W30 <laughs> workstation. <laughs> It was my only one. I, I think I think it just comes from a, a love of all of those things so much. I mean, I think some people often say like, you know, yeah, mixing uh, whatever comedy and music, like, what's that like? It's kind of like a new genre or, 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 or things like that. There's talk like that, but really it isn't. It's like, it's, it's as old as like, 
you know, court jesters, you know, playing lutes and things like that. I mean, it's a very old thing. Or even like, you know, vaudeville, um, musical theater, uh, you know, Sondheim, you know, like those types of things. But like even Victor Borga, who was like a soloist, a virtuosic piano soloist that was also really hilarious. Or Charo, who is a flamenco guitar player, who's also a comedic personality. So it's been around a while. I think it comes from the love of, I think it just comes from a love of uh entertainment in general and being able to use different tools to uh, express oneself you know whether it's uh, just music or whether it's blending music with funny lyrics or music with funny sounds or a mixture of serious music and then going into extemporaneous speech you know um all of those things to me they're all a part of this of of who i am so i don't I never really had a problem mixing the two. I just did it. You know, I did it. And some people found it annoying, but, you know, other people are like, that's not funny. But whatever it is, it was what I love to do and what I thought people would like. So that's, yeah, kind of it. I don't really see a distinction between the two so much. You know, a lot of times success in the arts and the performing arts is just sticking with it. You know, do you mind how do you mind my saying how old you are? No, please. I mean, at least I know approximately because you I'm graduated for, a year after me. I'm 43. Yeah, <laughs> and you're still and your career is still growing. Like yeah. you know, this past you know decade, it's just been. Yeah, I mean, I got even 33. A lot of people are like, <coughs> you know, packing it up and going home. If they're not like famous, if their career isn't. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and they're like, well, better get that job, get a mortgage. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I understand that, but for me, it was just not an option. I I, I love the arts so much. I love, I love everything. I love theater. I love music. I love acting. I love dancing. I love painting sculpture. For me, I, I, I thought like, well, it's night, it's 2000 or it's 1999. I don't know how I'm going to make a good living in music. I, I, I couldn't figure it out. And I was interested in comedy again because the state was uh, around and, um, who was it? Uh, Stella, which was three members of the state, Michael Showalter, Michael Ian Black and uh, David Wayne uh, released these really shitty DV vid- comedy videos that were so brilliant. And I started getting back into uh, or thinking about comedy again. And I did sketch comedy a little bit. But I thought, oh, you know, doing comedy as a solo act, I can do a little bit of music with my sampler or with my looper. And uh, that might be a way to go. And then I heard about a scene in New York and I had the good fortune of going out there. And when I was like 32 and I and I told myself, you know, I had a good time out there doing some stand up nights and people seemed to dig what I was doing. And then I told myself, if I can find a place to live within a year, then I'll, I'll move out to New York. And then uh, my uh, uh, my friend Tommy Smith, playwright, he uh, called me. He was living in New York, and he was like, a oh, room just opened up. And so because of him, I got to move into a really cheap room in the Lower East Side and start my comedy career there. The thing about comedy, too, is that comedians don't really – some comedians get great in their later 30s and mm-hmm. in their 40s they start to hit their their prime so i thought it was a smart move in that it's not as age dependent mm-hmm. as music you oh know, yeah to, like 25 ooh, yeah she's old it's like oh man really <laughs> she's got a she's got a lot of work to do you know or whatever it's like it's such a weird music at least pop music or music that's out uh is age very ageist and comedy isn't so much comedy is like if you can make someone laugh and people like you that's it, you know, and same thing with acting as well. I mean, yeah. there's a little bit of ageism, but if you find your niche, you 
can have a career all the way until you retire. Yeah, speaking of the guy, yeah, I always find it ironic. All the roles for guys, especially maybe I, I think women still, it's, you know, we just don't have parody in really in women's roles in theater. But for guys, it's like all the roles open up at 40. Yeah, that's true. You know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. People really start like, I mean, it started with like, at least in the mainstream, like 40 year old virgin. Yeah. You know, it's like that whole idea of like, oh, this guy's 40. It's like, oh, yeah, guys in their 40s are funny. Well, it's not even just the leads, you know, but when you look at all the extras and small sure. bit roles, it's like yeah. I would I would say like 75% of men's roles are kind of right at the 40, you know, and everybody yeah. goes and everybody competes like 20 year olds right out of college, you know, 22 year olds uh, yeah. and for very few, you know, younger roles. and. That's then it's attrition. Do they last until they're 40? Yeah, I know. And then goes back to you saying like, yeah, sometimes if you just stick around long enough, I mean, it's kind of true. I always tell people like, if you keep doing something long enough and you've got talent and you uh, are not an asshole to people, you'll be fine. Like there's, because people start falling off as time goes on, people start falling off and, and the people that stay are the strongest people. And those are people that have a track record that, that, that other people looking for actors or whatever the, the role is that they're looking for trust because there's, a, there's people that can say, Oh, this guy, this lady, she's amazing. She's incredible to work with. You, you got to use her. She's a weirdo, but you're gonna love it. And now thankfully because of Amy Poehler and Tina Fey and people like that, women in their forties are finding, are leads in movies yeah. now, which is good. So it's like, it's shifting that paradigm again. It's comedy. I think comedy really does a lot. Even, even for women who have it hard because of the prejudices, um, to close up, did your agent put you in for the daily show? <laughs> <laughs> Man, that would have, no, I never want to be tied in. You know, yeah. I, that's why I'm glad. Like when I'm on the late, late show, I'm glad it's not the late, late show with Reggie Watts. It never would be, but I'm just, I, when I see how much work he has to do for that show, I'm not interested in working that hard for something like that. Um, that's not my thing. I have to stay a little bit more nimble and agile and not associated. So I can be a part of something, but I can't. I always have to have one foot out the door. You've given us a lot of great philosophical nuggets. Do you have like one more that you'd like to close off this interview with? One last thought to leave all of our theater people listening? Yeah, man. I mean, theater is the ultimate art form, first of all. it's It incorporates every single artistic medium you can imagine in one thing, if it wants to. Um, and I think uh, theater is something that... that has to continue. I mean, there are certain types of theater that you have to do. There are regional theaters. There's the, there's the Broadway stuff that has to make money. Um, and so there's like a certain mainstream element to it. There's regional theater that you have to do these older plays because they're delightful and people really enjoy them. And there's a populace that comes to see those types of things. But in downtown theater, quote unquote, where people are doing experimental theater, performing in different ways and kind of messing with the idea of what theater is, live performance, all, it's all an important ecosystem, but I would say that it's important to appreciate all all forms of of art. I, I enjoy going to a big mainstream thing. I, I probably lean more heavily to the experimental side, but I also like seeing all the various. I love going to regional theater. Sometimes I love picking if I'm in a town, I'll just pick someone's doing a production of our town or whatever in like some small theater. I love going to that because it's important for theater to just continue to exist for people to be inspired to be in a theater where live people are on stage acting and there's a whole team 
coordinating the illusion or not the illusion, but the story, the immersive experience of it, the lighting, the sound, whatever it is, the way that the theater looks, the way the program's designed, the whole entire experience. As soon as you arrive at the theater and you come through those doors and you get sat and the lights go down and suddenly you're transported to another place. Not all theater is great. We all know that, but like, uh, it's important for people to continue, uh, pushing the limits and also celebrating what we already have. And um, I don't know, I think theater is the only thing that we would have left if all the power went out, if, uh, if, if everything that we knew to be uh, disappeared as an art form and as attested by many thousands of years of various forms of theater, it's a necessary part of human um, reflection. And uh, it's the only thing that would survive. It's, it's, it's kind of it. You've got music, you've got theater. That's kind of everything. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on your mother's birthday, no less. Yeah. And, Christian uh, Watts, 77. Best of luck in all your other experimental adventures. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Mike. All right. Reggie's interview was awesome, and it was so long. I mean, even cutting it down to this uh, shorter interview was very hard. But if you want to hear more, there's a lot more to hear from Reggie. Uh, there's a 70 minute interview, almost 70 minutes, um, in our feed and at our website, uh, like we do with all of our things. We have an edited interview in our main program, which I like to be a magazine feature where you can hear about a lot of stuff. And then if you like any of the, uh, artists you hear from in our show, there's a lot more detailed interview, um, online with the whole thing. And usually what I say for the full lengths, if you're wondering, is the more detailed stuff that would be interested to people in the industry. For instance, Reggie goes into a lot about his theories of improv and writing and all of that. Um, so the industry tips are kind of typically what I leave in. So that's a great thing if you're um, actually aspiring industry. So anyway, check out Reggie online or any of these other amazing interviews, full-length interviews in our uh, feed and as well as online. If you don't want to get all the full-length interviews, just simply select Download Most Recent Episode in your podcast, the feeds will always be uh, immediately underneath the episode. So that's the way to uh, not get inundated if you don't want all of the individual interviews. If you are a regular listener, or if you have just discovered Broadway Bullet, I have just set up a Patreon page. Please support our program by pledging a dollar amount for each podcast episode. I'm not going to make anything from these donations. All donations will go to expenses in producing the program, and providing flexible, part-time jobs to theater students for helping with the editing, follow-up, and more. Visit patreon.com slash broadwaybullet to contribute, or just click the link on our main webpage. Thanks in advance for your support in creating quality theater podcast programming. All right, let's get back to the program. In the Best of Company I am joined here today by the wonderful director, Joan Kane, and I, I want to try to give a quick highlight of what she's done, though it'll be very quick and very incomplete. I know she's won several awards at the Midtown International Theater Festival. She has directed overseas and abroad. She's directed large shows. She's directed small shows. She's directed workshops. She dips her hand into a little bit of everything. Um, she's in the middle of a production right now, which will probably will have wrapped by the time this airs. And uh, we are so pleased to have Joan Kane here with us. How are you doing? I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> so, you're, like I said, you're, you're, 
your palette of directing works is quite varied in location and subject matter. What do you look for when to accept doing a show? I guess the very first thing I think is very, the very first thing is, do I like the play? <laughs> and can I, can I work on this play? Can I make it sing? Can I tell this story? And it's usually stories that I'm interested in telling. That's, that's basically why I pick a play. Um, yeah. Your, your newest play that you're working on right now. Um, it's called I Know What Boys Want by Penny Jackson. So, for um, instance, what, what drew you to this one? A, a conversation that me and the playwright had about three years ago. Um, it's about cyberbullying. It's about a young girl who, she is, <laughs> she's uh, roofied. She's out cold and she's raped. And somebody tapes it. And I wanted to tell that story. And as we all know, the, those stories are in the news a lot. And three years ago, they were in the news, and I was incensed by them. And I wanted to talk about, I wanted to bring a mirror. I wanted to bring light to the, those stories and have discussions about it. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to, to direct the play. I asked Penny to write the play. And one of the things oh, that so, I, so was this even like kind of pitched, or this was, you were involved in the development? This yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I did, first I did a reading of it, and then we did a workshop production over at a small theater here on 30, uh, 36th Street called the Workshop Theater. Uh, it was a bare-bones production. And then uh, we worked on it for another two years, uh, rewriting, talking about it, what, what each scene needed, what each character needed to be more developed, and now we're doing it at the Lion Theater on Theater Row. Um, but what, what basically why I started working on the play was because I wanted to talk about cyberbullying. I wanted to talk about the misogyny in our culture to young girls. And she's an eight, the main character is an 18 year old girl who this happens to, um, but she isn't a victim. She stands up for herself and she stands up to the bully. And that was one of, that's the twist in the play is that she doesn't throw herself in front of a train. Like one of the articles that we wrote that we read um, a little girl in, in Staten Island threw herself in front of a train after she was um, roofied by some, I think it was football players. Okay. And, um, and she threw herself on, on, in front of a train. And we wanted this girl, this character, to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stand up for myself. And uh, that's the beauty of the play. It, it sounds yeah. like a very timely show. and I, We yeah. have a lot of like college people listening yeah. in high schools is do you know if this show is going to be available for other groups to perform anytime it soon? is it's actually um it's actually in print um i think it's going to be revised because in this production we added more characters more lines more scenes <laughs> so uh penny's in the process of rewriting that and it's going to be printed it's on indietheater.com which is a independent production company a production okay. house martin denton runs it and he he was the first person to uh, produce it to not produce it, but to uh, publish it. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll definitely have to put a link to that site because yeah. I'm glad. To, and it sounds like some great roles, besides being very timely, clearly an issue wise. It sounds like some great roles for women in this play. There's wonderful role, roles for women and for young men. It's it's a very young cast. Most of my my cast is under 24 years old, <laughs> and we have one adult. I mainly bring that up, not the great roles for young men. It's it's going to be a little theme over the thing our listeners are going to hear. I'm I especially being a college teacher now and having like seventy percent women in my program, you know, yeah. versus guys. I'm on like a big tear about there not being enough women's roles, right. good women's roles in theater. Absolutely. So that's one reason yeah. I'm really pointing this out that this sounds like a yeah. show for those other colleges wrestling with that to look yeah. at. 
Well, one of the things that Penny and I want to do, and my company, Ego Access, want to do, we want to take it into high schools. And we want to be able to perform it for high school students because it, it, ha it has that ability to uh, make conversation happen and have discussions. Well, Lisa, I know we have high school students listening. So if any of them go, hey, you got to listen to this interview, Mr. or Mrs. Teacher, mm -hmm. um, do you have a, a person that they'd prefer you, they contact if they're interested in that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, you can contact me, John okay. Kane or Bruce Kramer of Ego Actus. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully some, somebody pesters their teacher there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Says, let's bring this in. Years ago, I was involved in a, a women's theater company. I'm talking about the late 1970s here in New York City. It was called Lupa Productions. And it was a group of women who formed, I was one of them, who formed this company because there weren't a lot of roles for females. The roles were either mothers or whores. And we wanted to have more variety in, in plays and, and in roles that we wanted to play. I was acting at that point. Majority of us were actors, and um, we we actually commissioned playwrights to write plays where women were business people, and yeah. you know, and and doctors and lawyers, and we had a great time, and then we all started getting married and having children. Yeah, it, it, yeah. I have a big panel coming in. You're in the league of professional, professional women. theater women. I think yeah. I have like four people um, from that group coming in to have a big discussion on this yeah. issue for the podcast, which I'm very excited about. So other things that you, that you look for in directing, a couple of the other, like you've tackled, I know you have LGBT plays on your mm -hmm. agenda, you know, um, a lot of different things. What are some of the other highlights that stood out to you and, and why you've picked them? Uh, well, currently I'm working on a play other than I Know What Boys Want, uh, which is going up in the Thespian Festival uh, July 20th, and that is called Garrett and the Blue Giraffe. And... It's about, it's actually, it's not a children's show, though it sounds like a children's show. Yeah. It's a transgender play. Okay. It's about a giraffe that wants to be a rhinoceros. And there's a lot of music and a lot of dance in it. And it's by uh, Connie Kofinger, who, who actually writes beautiful plays about issues like this. And the actual person um, who's playing Garrett, the giraffe, who wants to be a rhinoceros, is a trans transgender woman. And she brings that experience to the play. I think it's. Uh, I think that there are many different voices in our community, and we need to give their voice credence. We need to make sure that there's a place for their voices to be heard, and that's part of why I wanted to direct that play. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. What are the challenges, or are there? What are the like the legal issues dealing with? You've directed a lot of plays overseas as well as in the U.S. Are there like visa issues you have to deal with, or not really? Okay. No, not really. They invite me in as a guest artist. I worked in Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Fringe. We, my production company, Ego Actors, brought two plays over there. One was Penny Jackson's play um, called Safe. So we went over to the Edinburgh Fringe and played there for the month of August, and that was three years ago. And then last year we went to um, Edinburgh with Bruce Kramer's play um, called What Do You Mean? Uh, so we were going to festivals and working in festivals, um, which you don't really have to have a visa to do that. When finding a play, working with a play, do you, do you hunt these out? Do you go to playwrights you know? Are things sent to you? How, how is your process of discovering this wonderful gem for you? A lot of people send me their plays. I have a stack of plays that come in paper and in emails. <laughs> and I'm very far behind in reading all the plays that are being sent to me. Always. <laughs> yeah. I go to a lot of readings, too. Uh, I see a lot of readings throughout New York City. 
And people will recommend me to a playwright or a playwright to me. Say, Joan, you should you should really be in touch with this playwright. Um, like last year, for instance, I directed a play called Sweet, Sweet Spirit by Carol uh, Carpenter. And that play was uh, recommended to me. Uh, I had done a reading of the play, and then the playwright asked me to come back and direct the play, and that was for MT Works. And that was just because I had directed the, the reading, and the playwright and I fell in love with each other as artists. You know, we collaborated well together. So she wanted me to direct the play, and, and, and I did. So that was one of the ways that a play came to me. Other, other ways is um, sometimes I, I look for a topic. I want to I direct a play about transgender people or about um, women being empowered. Or sometimes I like classical plays. Like, for instance, I just was in Oslo directing a play by Louis Pangello called uh, Six Characters in Search of an Author. Yeah. And that was really interesting because it was in Norwegian. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you, yeah. you mostly do new stuff, but yeah, you take yeah. on other, yeah. other works as well. Yeah. I wanted to, at one point, when I first formed Ego Actus, uh, one of our first plays was Hecuba. And I wanted to talk about war and women in war, so that was the reason why I found that play. And we did that at Theater for New City. Um, so it all depends on what I want to talk about, what, what I want to hold a mirror up to society and say, look, look, this is what's going on. So on a different topic, if we're, mm -hmm. as people negotiate this industry, there's always highs and lows. Mm -hmm. And I'll get to the flip in a minute, but I, I want to say, have there been low points? Have there been times where you said, ah, oh, I just want to quit this business? Oh, I, you uh, bet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can you describe any of them? Because this is a lot of times, yeah, there were lows, but I think I think people need to hear out there sometimes. Yeah. I think it can help other people with their lows to hear that in in your great career that what you've gone through is well, a low point. Yeah, there there have been quite a few lows. Um, I've been I've been in the business since I've been a kid. I went to the high school performing arts, and then I graduated and was an actor. Uh, I had all my union cards, and I worked a lot and doing extra work and off off Broadway. And then I, I decided to have children. And having children and having a career at the same time, for me, was really difficult. Um, I wasn't making a lot of money as an actor or a director. So I had to teach full time because I needed to, I needed health insurance. Yeah. <laughs> I needed to buy sneakers for my children. And, um, and even though I was teaching, I was getting my directing in here and there. But it wasn't a full-time career because, again, I had to make a living. And because the arts in, in America, you don't make a living a lot. We don't have a lot of state-funded um, you know, programs yeah. for artists. So it's, it's always about eking out a living. And, um, and then I, my kids grew up, and I was able to work full-time uh, as a director. And when I was working full-time as a director, what was difficult was I was older, and the doors weren't open to me. And I was knocking on a lot of doors, and nobody was letting me in. There's a lot of gatekeepers, I think, in, in, our, in our culture, yeah. in, our, in our industry. And um, nobody would open any doors for me. I mean, I, I was knocking. I was like pounding, come, let me work. Let me work in your theater. And I was in a, I was in a symposium in Umbria, the La Mamba directing symposium, which... I can't say, I, I mean, it, it just saved my life. It was an amazing experience. Um, Ellen Stewart was sitting there. She's the founder of La Mama, and she was alive at that point. It was, this was like in 2006, and um, she, she felt my frustration. And, I, and she said, why are you so frustrated? Why are you asking other people permission to do your work? Do what I did. I formed my own company. And so two years later, I formed Ego Actus, and I've been working in producing plays 
ever since then, I've produced 29 plays. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to have that. Yeah. Pro, I mean, I mean, no, I know not every artist is suited for it, but I think training programs really need to not like l- mention it as a possible option. But I think more universities need to put like some sort of entrepreneurship or producing or mm-hmm. re- kind of requirement in for artists and actors and directors in their programs. I, I agree. I, I think that the self-produced artist today is really important. Instead of sitting there and waiting to do your work. Do your own work. I've done a lot of site-specific when I couldn't afford to produce, you know, hire a theater. We'd go in a park and we'd put on, we'd put on, you know, Two Gentlemen of Verona. We would do all different, you know, uh, site-specific pieces, development pieces, devised work. Um, I think it's really important as an artist to, to, to work, to make sure you, you have a place to do your work, even if it's in a park or a bar or in someone's living room. I have friends who do plays in living rooms. They, they sell 15 chairs <laughs> and they call them the living room plays or they call them the house plays, but they're still doing their work. There's a group of playwrights that I know that do that. Fantastic. Any uh, closing shots? Any final thought you'd like to get out there as we wrap up this interview, John? Yeah, I think what I'd love to say is there's all different ways to do your work. You don't have to just do it in an established way in a status quo way you can do your work wherever you need to do your work and as an artist you need to work and do whatever you can to do that yeah well said thank you so much for joining us today. thank you for having me on listening room all right i got a great song to play for you for listening room this time a demo from a listener And remember, if you'd like to get your song, uh, your demo, your cabaret song, your musical theater song on, uh, give me an email at broadwaybulletnyc. Send me the track. Send me a little information on yourself, a little setup information on the song, if it's in a show. And uh, for this week, we've got Amanda Higgins is a 22-year-old North Carolina native who recently moved to New York City to continue her career as an actor. During college, she started experimenting with writing and came out with a piece called Wellwater, a parable. Wellwater is largely based on themes and stories from the biblical New Testament and takes place in a 1930s farm town. It tells the story of Joan, a feisty young woman who gets kicked out of town for her promiscuous lifestyle. In this song called Something in the Water, Joan reflects on how her life has changed since Samuel gave her the chance to start over, and she finally begins seeing for herself his vision of inviting the whole nearby farm town to do the same. This demo recording features Drew Blakeman and Amanda Higgins on vocals and Asher Denberg on the keys. Samuel, I'm different. You know I'm different. I know they still hate me. I know what they think of me, but I don't feel I hate them anymore. And I know that when they see how I've changed, or maybe I'll just have to tell them, then they'll be curious. They'll have to wonder what living out here has done with me, what it's been like living with you on this land living off this well water. Joan, that swell is real swell, but it may not be that easy. Well, I'm not saying it'll be easy, but you know as well as I do, two is better than one. (laughs) See, you know. In my yesterdays, I was somebody else as if built behind a mask of lies and mud. When your soul is dry, you can't see beyond the thirst, cause nothing satisfies, but 
took that step, the water opened up my eyes. There's something in the water, it's almost unbelievable, but something just Again, that was Amanda Higgins with Something in the Water. Uh, we've got a link to uh, her blog, as well as links to everybody that you hear about is on our website under the show notes. We have links, so you can find them a lot easier. Might want to do that. All right, let's get moving on. Cabaret Corner. All right. Okay. I'm sitting here with Joe McGinty of... Famed Losers Lounge Heritage, among many other things, and now the resident and brand new pianist at uh, the Sid Gold's Request Room, the brand new piano bar on 26th Street in uh, Manhattan. How are you doing? Good, good, good. This is my new home away from home. So what's it like? Is this your first home home Uh, Well, as a pianist? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I've been homeless up until now, but uh, uh, this is, yeah, my first kind of know place that i'm involved in uh as a partner and uh owner uh you know i've been playing piano karaoke piano bar style gigs for over 10 years in different places uh in manhattan in brooklyn 
And uh, I've always wanted to do it at my own place, you know, just so I yeah, could have like a regular spot. It's something I love doing and I love the tradition of piano bars. And, uh, you know, luckily Paul Devitt, owner of the Beauty Bar, approached me about doing one together. So that's kind of how it all started. Now, you've done a lot, but I, I would say probably your biggest claim to fame whether people know your name or not, I think most everybody, and whether they know what it is or not, I think everybody has heard of Loser's Lounge. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's that's a pretty big thing. So so I do think, I like myself, I, I've heard of Loser's Lounge, and I heard Joe McGinty's Loser's Lounge, but I don't know if I ever really kind of knew exactly what that was, and it's still ongoing. Oh, yeah, so, um, yeah. We uh, do about six shows a year. Um, it's a tribute show where we have a house band, and then we have about 20 different singers over the course of an evening covering a particular artist catalog. Anybody from Burt Bacharach to ABBA, uh, you know, we just did Joni Mitchell. And, uh, you know, it's just a really great night of entertainment because we have so many different singers, all different styles. We have, you know, rock and roll singers, we have comedians, and people do their own takes on the songs. And uh, we have a great band, and it's something that's been going for over 20 years now. So. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, something that's going to keep going. You know, as long as people keep coming, we'll keep doing those shows. Um, so, Losers Lounge, what was the? Did you start it, or did you start it with somebody? Or I pretty much started it on my own. Uh, you know, I mean, it started back in the early '90s uh, as a sort of guilty pleasure night. Um, you know, I had these friends, and we would talk, and you know, express our love for. Burt Bacharach and ABBA and things like that back when it was not cool yet. It was uh, still something you just sort of like shared privately amongst your friends because, you know, around the time grunge was still happening and New York was... While it may be cool now with people like us, <laughs> I still don't know if it's actually cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to know. But I guess it's cool enough that we sell out five shows at yeah. Joe's Pub. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, the context... Of, of that time and then it was just surprising to find out how many singers and musicians in the New York scene were also into this stuff so that's kind of how it's grown over the years and we you know we have mostly local singers but occasionally famous people have joined us on stage from people like Fred Armisen and Debbie Harry uh, Jay Maskus of Dinosaur Jr. Uh, but it's all really about the feeling of community you get you know the the singers people rooting each other on and uh so you know it's just uh one of those i guess becoming a new york institution um you know like i said we keep doing it and people keep coming so uh it's it's there's yeah just you know and there's always like little hidden treasures that we find like we'll do obvious big hits by the artist but then we'll find some obscure b-sides uh, you know, for the John Lennon uh, show, we found a recording that Sissy Spacek had done about John Lennon from the 60s. So, you know, it's like part of the fun is the research and finding these obscurities and then convincing people to do them. Uh, and, you know, there's a little bit of casting. You know, I try to match people with songs, but then other times people are adamant about, you know, particular song means a lot to them. They really want to sing it. So it's a lot of fun, a lot of work, a lot of yeah. you know logistics putting it together. But uh, and you know there's a great band, and we you know often we'll have a horn section and a string section, just to try to recreate the feel of these great classic records from the '60s and '70s. Do you have your own website for that? Uh, yes, loserslounge.com. You can go there, and there's links to YouTube videos. There's a YouTube channel. You know, 
Facebook, all the usual stuff. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so Sid Gold's request room. Right. As I understand, um, this kind of you were a part of the reason this bar got investors. This is the, you're the part of the reason this bar came into being. Right, right. Because you know Paul and I came up with the idea, but then yeah, we had to raise investment capital to you know take over the lease, do a lot of the renovation and things like that. And yeah, I mean it's it's uh, you know I guess partly based on my reputation that people felt comfortable contributing and being part of it, and a lot of the. People involved are also music people, like Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne is a partner. Uh, so, you know, we all have the same vision and the same, uh, you know, similar taste in music. So I, I think uh, it's a good team. So just before we talk about your musical part in uh, Sid Gold's, what was your vision of how is this piano bar different from all the other piano bars and where is this piano bar's niche in a city that has a lot of piano bars. Uh, well, I don't know if there's still a lot of piano bars. I mean, I think they've slowly been going away. Uh, but I'd say most piano bars are, you know, very show tune oriented. And we're more of a rock and roll piano bar, you know, classic rock, new wave. We've got punk rock songs on our list. Yes, my friend uh, was very pleased to see some very obscure rock tracks on, yeah. <laughs> on your list to play. <laughs> so I think that's it. Uh, you know, we, we try to... I mean, when we do have some show tunes, but, you know, we try to make it, you know, because I love piano bars, too, and I've, I've been to Marie's Crisis, but I'm not a show tune guy. So when I go there, there's not a lot that I can sing. So this is sort of more for your average person that just likes songs they've heard on the radio or songs from the record collections, things like that. Okay, so Sid Gold's request from a lot of fun. Um, I'm really pleased. I, I could, not only is it great to interview you, but one of my good friends is one of the investors and hooked Broadway Bullet up to let us do our <laughs> interviews right here. In the Sid Gold's request room, so that's fantastic. Um, and I had a lot of fun when I came in here on Tuesday night to check it out. All right, so with that, any closing shots you'd like to get out in your interview? Uh, no, but thanks for having me, and uh, come down to Sid Gold's and practice your singing. All right, it was a pleasure getting to talk to you. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Breaking the Business. All right, I'm here with Dara Rosenberg, and for something a little different, I always like to bring on every different type of element of what's going on in theater and opportunities. And I recently myself have gotten involved in a lot of audiobook narrating, and the world's exciting. And I was looking for somebody online who has shifted you know, their, their focus from traditional acting, so to speak, to moving towards voiceover acting, and especially books on tape. And uh, Dara Rosenberg certainly fits that criteria. She's uh, now making her living voiceover artist, how are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. Well, let's hear your like sultry voice. Uh, just kind of like this. So, <laughs> <laughs> I pretty much just talk as myself most of the time. So, <laughs> what was the appeal of? Uh, so, what was the appeal of voice over work? And I think um, for me personally, I was dealing with the hustle and bustle of auditioning in New York City, and I was doing very well. I've been in many off-Broadway shows, and I toured for a really long time, and I personally had this fear of being on stage all of a sudden, out of nowhere, after drama school, just this crazy fear. And my agent said to me, why don't, and my agent said to me, why don't you go behind the mic? And I was like, okay, I'll try it. So I went in for my first audiobook audition, had no idea what it was, never even heard of a book on tape or anything like that. And I went and auditioned for Audible and it completely opened up a new career for me. So how long ago was that? That was four years ago. Okay. So 
what was your thoughts of what an audiobook was and and the work that would be involved doing an audiobook versus the reality for you? Okay, so of course you would immediately think it was like talking to kids in a a classroom. Like you have to like baby everything and like really play every character and stuff. But it's really not like that. Listeners are driving to work. They're on the elliptical at the gym. They want a subtle tone that is a narrator telling a story, yet playing all of the characters and not being so obnoxious that you're not like, oh, that's the guy doing his grandma's voice. That's the girl doing the guy's voice. Just kind of all flowing together so it all sounds cohesive. And just they can listen to a story and enjoy themselves. How much of work do you record at home? And how much are you going into studios? So I personally do almost 100% at home. I would go into studios if they required me to, but they say, hey, you know, why don't you just do it at home? They know I'm going to deliver the material. My audio sounds good. So they keep me at home. But if a new publisher wanted me in the studio, I would be there in five seconds. What's the difference working in at home versus in the studio for you? I've gotten so used to working at home. A lot of people go home for two days and they're like, how do you do this? But I have a very strict routine and I work throughout the entire day with just little breaks. So I felt like I took more breaks at the studio, actually, if that's weird, because <laughs> there was like free food and stuff. So, <laughs> I don't know. At Audible, there's all this food and like a unlimited Diet Coke. So I was like all the time going to the bathroom and stuff. Well, I, I don't know if this happens <laughs> to you, but I, I found out from somebody else that maybe I'm not alone, but I feel like I'm going to be like really crude here when, when I started doing them. I find, especially the first hour, I'm starting to narrate, that I have incredible gas and I'm burping like all the time. The first hour is the worst. And I feel like if I were like there with an engineer at the desk, I would be horrified. Well, I feel like <laughs> that's true. I, I never realized like my stomach growled a lot while I was in the studio, but I never hear it in my home recording because I think I'm more relaxed and I'm just focused on the material instead of what does this engineer think I'm doing? <laughs> Obviously, that's very important. There are some publishers that require you to come in and want a director, and that'd be great. That would be wonderful. But um, I don't think the business is going in that direction. I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. Have you had directors on a project? Have you gone in the studio and had a director? Yeah, I've had a couple directors slash engineers. Okay, that, this is what I wanted to ask, <laughs> and I'm not sure, but... I, I, I have a feeling because I know a couple people have tried to break in and they go, oh, all well, the books have directors. But I, a director is not what a director is in theater, right? I've never actually had an engineer and a director. Maybe I, celebrities do or really yeah. good people that are doing like really, really fantastic books. I don't really get the best of the books. I'll take whatever. This is what I feel a director is. Uh, to correct me if I'm wrong in the terminology to make it correct. When you see, I, when I now, when I see that a book is a director, is an audiobook, that means that they were basically on script while engineering. It's not coaching. It's not telling them, oh, do it better, play it, do it more playful. It's, you're getting tired. You know, yeah. let's recut. You're, um, you missed a word. Let's recut. So I think there's both situations. There are engineers who will say, stop, you got to do that mm -hmm. line again. And they're just engineers, but they are so good at what they do and they know that line needs to be redone. I've heard of, Directors as well being in the room. I've never no, had really, that, okay. but supposedly it exists. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but uh, if you have a really good engineer, it, it does help a lot. Yeah. So um, what are some of your favorite books that you've done or what, and, and why? Okay, so I love cheesy romance books. 
I don't know why. Like, maybe I don't get enough romance in my life. I do. But <laughs> I love them. I love, like, stories of people just meeting on the street and then they fall in this deep romance. It's a fun life. I do a lot of them. And um, I, I can't really name any specific. I just really? do so many of them. <laughs> do you do it now? I do also know that erotica is yes. incredibly popular um, in audiobook form. Yeah. Is I, that something that you do as well? I do a lot of that. Like so much. <laughs> it's really bad. Yeah. And at the beginning of my career, I definitely took whatever was handed to mm-hmm. me. Now I'm a little picky, but if a big publisher hands me the book, I do it under a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. Is it fun or is it embarrassing? I am alone. <laughs> like it's if my husband is home and he's quiet. I'm like, I just have one more chapter. Please be quiet. That's when it's embarrassing. I'll come out and he'll be like, what are you doing? What are you doing in there? And I'm like, I'm sorry. Literally having sex with two different people that are just met five seconds ago. <laughs> Did you do any preparation as you were moving into this industry or special training? or I listen your- to samples on Audible all the time. Sometimes like in the middle of the day, I'll be like, how do you do this again? And I'll listen to some of my favorite narrators, uh, Julia Whelan, um, Scott Brick. And I'll just listen to them and I'll be like, oh yeah, that's what you do. I, I, that kind of gets me back in the mood. Is, is there anything that felt switching from traditional acting to audiobooks that felt weird or that traditionally accepted kind of style or delivery that felt different for you that you had to adjust to and get used to? And the- I think there's a difference between like obviously stage and film. I think um, audiobooks has a little bit of both. On film, you have to pull back completely. You c- and in audiobooks, you do have to pull back completely because as much as you're behind a microphone, it, it can seem fake if you're too over the top. So I do mix a lot of my theater background and any film background I have and try and contain it while still being expressive, if that makes any sense. How do you deal with five characters in a conversation at once? Oh, my God. I'm probably <laughs> horrible. I have no idea. <laughs> so I, I tend to think of people that they remind me of and just go for it. I'll just say, oh, they kind of remember you, remind me of my friend. There's this woman, Jenny, and I base so many characters on her. <laughs> and it's not like, oh, I'm going to make my voice sound like that. I just think, oh, how would Jenny say these lines? And it comes out, I'm like, oh, all right. That sounds like a defined character. You know, and I mean, I'll either go slow or I'll, I'll, I'll change cadences or um, the deepness of my voice. I can't go that deep. I'm not a man. Yeah. You know, I can play men, but I'm not going to be a man. So you have to, it's always hard when there's like five men talking. You're like, oh, (laughs) one of them, please be from like New Jersey or something. That's like, I can get that. (laughs) You know, that'll be a different character. So how much like voice and speech and diction training was was involved in your education? So tons. I took voice and speech every single year, every semester, whether it was three hours a week or whatever it was. I think the best thing that I've learned about drama school and technique and everything like that is a lot of audiobook narrators that maybe didn't have a drama background constantly struggle with their diction or they're like, oh, I'm breathing too much. I I hear my breaths. And I think that I don't have to deal with that as much because my technique is there. I don't really, you have to let your technique go, obviously, but something's got to be built down 
Somehow drama school helped me. Yeah. All right. Well, um, do you want to like, is there an email that if anybody wants to join your email list, that Absolutely. you'd give them a free, free code Wait, do or I, something? Am I, am I supposed to be a marketer and have an email list? Or, or just do you want them to email you and say, hey, I heard you on Broadway Bullet. Can you give me a book? I have so many codes if you want to Okay. Code. So tell them where they email. And you'll um, get- you can email me at DNR, what was my initials? 216 at gmail.com. Or you can go to my website, DaraRosenberg.com. You can contact me there on a contact form, and I'll send you over whatever code you want or whatever romance novel you want. Yeah, so definitely email, get a free book. If you haven't listened to audiobooks, it's a great way. And yeah, and if anybody has any questions about breaking in or starting a home studio, as long as they're like small questions, I'm happy to answer them. That's how I got started from everybody else. All right, well, thank you for swinging by uh, yeah, Sid Gold's thanks. request room and uh, talking with us, and so frankly... It's like it's always a, it's always a pleasure to get the honest talk and not just the polish, you know, the glo- know. the glossy story of success in audiobook land. No, I think everybody has uh, struggles, and uh, it's a great industry to be in, and I'm happy to be in it. Curtain call. All right. Well, that about wraps up this episode. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and again, one more time, if you have any idea where I might be able to do these interviews uh, for a location sponsor, uh, December 14th through 18th, I'd love to hear from you, broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. Keep spreading the word. I love how the audience for the show is growing. Again, I really want this getting out educationally, so maybe let me know. Are you a student? Are you a teacher? Um, Let your students or your teachers know about the program and help spread the word and get it out there. We're back with our next episode on October 19th with, again, lots of great interviews. Uh, Hopefully some more great music. Composers, send your music. And whatever the case, whether you don't want to check in on our website and call our call-in number, which nobody's done, or just send me an email letting me know uh, why you listen to the program or why you like it. It it is a great thing for me to hear because I do put a lot of time in this, and I guarantee you there's absolutely no money. It's a financial sinkhole for me, but I love it. And I love it even more when I hear that you guys love it. So please do let me know. It it keeps me motivated to do the program. All right. With that said, it's time to wrap up. See everybody again on October 19th. And remember, Broadway Bullet is produced and hosted by myself, Michael Gilbo. Our associate producer for this half season is Caroline Reyes. And if you would like to be an associate producer or help out with uh, online promotion or whatnot, or if you're going to be in New York from the 14th to 18th, I'm looking for assistance. You'll get to meet all the interviewees, etc. So drop me an email, broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. 
I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.